2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's been just over one month since the Israel-Hamas war began, resulting in the deaths of thousands of civilians and a worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Where we live, we'll be talking about the war on an ongoing basis, featuring different voices and perspectives. As we continue to follow what's happening, the images and reports coming out of the region are dire. Some experts say, This war alone will create a generation in trauma. Disasters like this impact a lot of people, and not just those directly affected in the region. It's increasingly important to understand what trauma means, the many ways it manifests, and how to apply that understanding, particularly as complex and critical issues command our attention. Today, we're examining how the Israel and Hamas war is creating lasting trauma globally. And joining us now is Dr. Julian Ford. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Connecticut Health Center. He's also the principal investigator and director for the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders at the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Thank you so much, Dr. Ford, for being with us today.
1: Good morning, Catherine.
2: And Dr. Ford, I want to start by having you respond to what's happening in Gaza and Israel today. Can you talk about the level of trauma that's happening there?
1: Uh, it, it's extreme and severe. And when an entire generation is affected and nations are affected, then the, the reaction is it's, it's a form of stress. So we talk about trauma, but we're really talking about traumatic stress because physical trauma may be part of it un- tragically, but for so many thousands of children and families and adults in Israel and Palestine and the West Bank, Gaza, this is a. This is an experience where, for children in particular, they they go through a range of reactions, and it often begins with a sense of shock and fear. And then it morphs into a, a fundamental sense of insecurity, because even when their parents and caregivers and community members are protecting them to the best of their ability, there is no safe place, tragically. And then it morphs into grief because there is such <clears throat> tremendous loss that's occurring, uh, not just death, but certainly that and the loss of an entire community. And finally, it, it often morphs into a sense of anger about the injustice of the, the, the conditions under which they are now forced to live.
2: And you speak of of morphing, and I want to talk about especially when it comes to children that has gone through this kind of trauma. So according to UNICEF, uh, UNICEF, children make up 47% of Gaza's population. So that means so many children are currently living through a war. So can you talk about what are some of the biggest challenges in addressing lived trauma in children?
1: That's it. That's exactly the the point. These are children <clears throat> who are not experiencing post-traumatic stress, but they are experiencing the ongoing continuous exposure to life threatening situations, to losses, to a sense of their community falling apart and, and being horribly damaged. So children's reactions then are to immediately try to go into a mode of protecting themselves and those who they care about. And that then leads them to actually focus so much on safety and security that they can't really focus on the other crucial aspects of development, like learning, play, being involved with peers, family relationships. So traumatic stress that these children are experiencing on an ongoing basis, that's actually shifting their whole development. And it's preventing them from moving forward in their development in a way that can profoundly cause changes and a loss of actually years of their emotional and psychological life.
2: And I think it's super interesting now that this idea of children and adults, too, but talking about children at this moment Experiencing ongoing stress is really a conversation that's happening now with more more people recognizing it and talking about it. And I, I want to talk about too, you know, we hear often that children are they're so good at coping, you know, they're so resilient. But when we talk about a child who survives a trauma, how does that impact them over time? You know, what does that lasting impact look like if they don't have a support system?
1: Well, it is very important to start with the fact that children are incredibly resilient but there is a cost of resilience. And that is a cost that's both physical, because it puts places a tremendous strain on the body. And it can actually, uh, there are studies that show that coping with intense traumatic stress can actually lead to premature aging. Uh, And the other effects that are most crucial are that children become focused instead of on learning and experiencing the world and enjoying their relationships and their lives, they become focused on making sure that the next thing that happens, that's dangerous or horrible that they're prepared for. So they become hypervigilant. And when a child is hypervigilant, they fundamentally have to not focus on what they're feeling and instead focus on what may be the next horrible threat or the next terrible shock that then makes it really difficult for them to enjoy and be be a part of relationships. It makes it difficult for them to engage in school if they're even able to go to school, which is of course another whole challenge. So it it fundamentally shifts children from being focused on learning and experiencing life to just trying to survive.
2: And so we are planning to talk about the different impacts of trauma on where we live for the next coming weeks and months. And, but this is, this is, of course, a very specific um, sort of situation for, for children. And even before the war began this year, there have been generations of conflict in this region. Can you help us understand what collective trauma and intergenerational trauma is and how it's impacting not just those in the region of Israel and Gaza, but also around the globe?
1: Well collective trauma is the experience of a sense of threat and loss that takes place when people recognize that in their own community in their own country but also across the the globe that this is a this is a part of life that none of us want to ever think about but that our safety our security even our lives and those of our loved ones can be taken away at any moment that's an enormous shock and we're all feeling that everywhere in the world. Intergenerational trauma is the the kind of the, the downstream flow of the effects of this, these traumatic stress reactions where when parents and caregivers or grandparents when they've been through extreme trauma they are coping in ways that are profound and important but they can't they can't change the fact that they they've had to shift their whole focus in life to just finding ways to be safe and survival. And the next generation then experiences that, not as a trauma, but as a kind of a, a warning sign that you have to always be cautious and careful that something terrible could happen. And and the next generation after that then often experiences this as just a, a kind of a vague sense that somehow things aren't the way they should be. And that, that spillover, that downstream effect can then lead the the next generations to be particularly sensitive to any kinds of shocks or stresses and it makes it just more difficult to cope with any kind of stress
2: and so because we're talking about what's happening in israel and gaza today you know even if people don't have family members or direct ties to the region could seeing what is happening cause secondary trauma and can you tell us what is secondary trauma
1: well, we're all human and, and when we look at others, other human beings who are suffering or who are ex- experiencing extreme threats and losses, it, it triggers a sense of compassion. Secondary trauma is really the the effect of compassion in response to recognizing that others in our community or in our world are experiencing the kinds of threats and dangers and losses that none of us would want anyone to have to go through. So It's actually a very healthy reaction. It's based on compassion, but it can place a great strain on a person's emotions and on their relationships because now you become focused on what you could do for for people who are perhaps years or uh, thousands of miles away, and that sense of helplessness can lead to a feeling that we call compassion fatigue, which is not a lack of caring. It's fundamentally caring so much and feeling as though you want to make a difference, but you just don't know how.
2: I think fatigue is certainly something that we've been hearing a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, With us today is Dr. Julian Ford. He's a professor of psychiatry at the University of Connecticut Health Center. He is also the principal investigator and director for the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders at the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. He'll be staying with us as we unpack what's happening in Israel and Gaza and how it's impacting mental health around where we live. Coming up, we hear from those that have direct ties to the region. This is where we live. Stay with us.
0: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving.
3: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When you think of trauma, you might think of PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder. But experts say trauma goes beyond this diagnosis and is more nuanced than we think, especially when trauma is happening in real time. Joining us now is Steve Sosby, who's the president and founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Thank you so much, Steve, for being with us today.
3: Thank you for
1: having me.
2: And still with us is also Dr. Julian Ford, who is the professor of psychiatry at the University of Connecticut Health Center. So, Steve, I want to start with you. Um, You know, your organization is working to address the humanitarian crisis on the ground in Gaza, and along with providing the essential needs of food, water, and shelter. There's also a, a really big need for mental health support. Oh, support. And so some might see mental health support as sort of a secondary need, but based on what we just heard from Dr. Ford, I want to ask, you know, is is this a primary need that needs to be addressed urgently?
3: Absolutely. The uh, I think it's one of the main challenges that we're going to be facing in the coming weeks, months, years, because what we've seen, and we have a mental health program in Gaza, our organization has been running one for, since 20, the, the bombings of 2014, in which we did a field assessment and found that over 70% of the children there were suffering from some, for, some form of trauma as a result of uh, being exposed to violence and all the other factors that Professor or Dr. Ford mentioned. Um, it is absolutely critical that we come in now to try to intervene and support um, children on the ground who are being traumatized, both as Dr. Ford said, physically and more importantly, even psychologically. Um, unfortunately, uh, as was mentioned, this is not post-traumatic stress that we're dealing with. It's an ongoing current exposure to the sources of trauma, which is the bombing, the occupation, the closure, the poverty that's being imposed on an entire generation of children. they are now more extreme than ever. I mean, what's happening today in Gaza is genocide against the Gaza children. And this is clear. This has been documented. And as a result, not only is the physical trauma one that we have to deal with as an organization coming in and providing doctors and medical care to children, but even the bigger challenge is that you have an entire generation, every single child in Gaza, is going to have some form of trauma, psychological trauma, as a result of what they're being exposed to and experiencing right now. And how does one go about dealing with this effectively as an organization, bringing in professionals who have the experience and the ability to treat this disorder or treat these children uh, when the root cause of the trauma that they are have been exposed to and which is causing them such uh, significant challenges in their development continues, which is the ongoing bombing and the ongoing killing of, of the people there. Um, until that's resolved, we're not going to be effectively able to really help kill these children for the long-term benefit of the society and for their families and for themselves
2: and so we're here talking about you know there's such a a dire need for mental health support as well as you know physical medical supplies and and basic needs is your organization able to get access to the region currently
3: yes so we have three offices in gaza one of them was bombed recently we have a staff of 40 who are all sheltering in place because there are no safe places in gaza many of them are homeless had their homes bombed some of them had family members killed um, but uh, we also opened the first and only pediatric cancer department in 2019, which right now, that hospital is being bombed. All of the patients have been forced to evacuate this morning, waving white flags into the streets, have no place to go. Um, uh, you know, can't, kids with cancer, kids with, uh, uh, who are in the intensive care unit, kids who are on dialysis. This was the main hospital in the city and has been forced to evacuate uh, under the, um, uh, the barrels of tanks. Uh, and so we, we we ran that cancer department up until today and to continue to try to provide children with leukemia and other types of cancer uh, and blood diseases, uh, basic treatment. Um, and unfortunately, as the situation worsened and the, the hospital is hit by a a rocket uh, three days ago. Um, It's just deteriorated and made it difficult more and more to provide care for those kids. In addition, we've been bringing children out of Gaza. We had an injured child cross into Egypt yesterday and we'll be bringing her to the U.S. for medical care. That's something our organization does on a regular basis. We brought hundreds of children from Gaza over the past 30 years for free medical care. And then we send medical teams in. We're the main organization in the world that provides direct surgical care for children on the ground. Thereby sending volunteer teams from all over the world. And that's difficult to do right now because the borders are closed. Meanwhile, we're procuring millions of dollars worth of humanitarian aid, medical supplies, and medical equipment to go into Gaza. But right now, that aid is being uh, limited, uh, entering into Gaza. And that's having a tremendous impact, as you can all imagine, because the needs are overwhelming. They need 1,200 trucks a day carrying food, water medicine shelter uh, clothing and other basic necessities for the 1.5 million displaced people and only around uh, a few dozen trucks are able to enter so it's falling far short of what the needs are and this also all impacts that as, as Dr. Ford said that mental health of the population there because they're all living in these extreme conditions of insecurity of fear and that's um throughout the entire population. So our organization is, like many aid organizations, very frustrated right now with, uh, as uh, as Dr. Ford said, the secondary uh, trauma, which we all feel that we need to do more. We want to do more. We have the resources to do more, but we're prevented from doing more. And that's extremely frustrating for the entire uh, community of people who feel very uh, strongly about what's happening in Gaza, witnessing in front of the world a genocide taking place and not being able to do more to help prevent it and save the lives of these innocent children.
2: Well, we're certainly going to be digging deeper into how to provide support for that kind of stress, you know, short-term and long-term. Yesterday, we spoke with Faisal Saleh. He's the founder and executive director of the Palestine Museum U.S. here in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Here's what he had to say about what children are experiencing in the region.
4: And a lot of the children at the time, all of them almost, were traumatized. Like uh, they say, in, in in many places uh, they call it ptsd mm-hmm. uh but in gaza they they omit the p because it's constant it's not post because there's no there's no time to have a post so part of uh therapy for the children they that some ngo uh ask children to uh, in a group to to paint what they saw and they they collected 200 of these paintings. We have all of them, we're showing 50. Uh, and um, the children had all kinds of stuff. I mean, the children in Gaza are no ordinary children. You know, they're the people that have been de-childed. The term de-childing is a, is a new term. It's where you have people who are four years old that, that, that experience life like a 20-year-old. Uh, and they can do things and talk things that you would never imagine what they're saying, you know.
2: Ford, I wanna bring you back to the conversation um, with what we heard from Faisal and what Steve just, uh, the picture that Steve painted for us as well. Can you talk about post-traumatic stress and current traumatic stress that can manifest into a lot of symptoms and and sometimes for children, they can regress because of that experience. So can you talk about what that might look like in children?
1: absolutely and it it's so crucial to recognize that this is ongoing traumatic stress uh, as faisal said and as steve uh, clearly stated so the effects then are that children shift from focusing on learning and and play and experiencing the world as children should to the more adult matters of just trying to make their way through life but they're trying to make their way through a a a essentially a life that is a constant sense, uh, source of threat. So how do they react? Well, they become hypervigilant. They do not let their guard down. They don't focus on their emotions. And in fact, sometimes they even lose track of their emotions and feel emotionally numb. They pull away from relationships, even the closest relationships, because they're they're scared that if they're too close to someone, they may lose that person. So paradoxically, they move away when they most need the support. They shift away from focusing on learning and education. Instead, they're, they're just trying to make sure that the next thing that happens again is not something that they are unprepared for. And that that leads to a kind of a regression because in many cases, kids, as they're trying to be adults, and you're, they're not prepared to, they have to find ways to soothe themselves. They have to find ways to go back and just recapture a, even moments of childhood. And when they do that, it looks like they're they're acting like children much younger than themselves. A 12-year-old might seem to be acting more like a four-year-old. It's simply because they're trying to reclaim just a moment of their childhood, and they're not even aware of this. This is not a conscious choice.
2: And Steve, especially with what Dr. Ford just shared, you know, eventually these children who have survived the war will grow up. How do you think their development might be impacted from surviving this war?
3: Well, it's not clear where this war is going to end and what the deeper impact is going to be on the children of Gaza. But I think Dr. Ford indicated pretty clearly that um, it's going to have a tremendous impact on the development of children and the whole generation there that are already living under extremely difficult circumstances when it comes to education, healthcare, and other things. I would like to point out, uh, because Dr. Ford mentioned this earlier when he described trauma, and he mentioned intergenerational trauma, I think it's important for all the listeners to remember that the, the trauma that the Palestinians have been experiencing, and particularly in Gaza, because 70% of the population there are refugees from 1948, they've been experiencing interna- intergenerational trauma for generations. In 1948, you know, hundreds of thousands of refugees fled into the Gaza Strip and have been living in eight refugee camps there since. And that that trauma has been passed down through generations from the grandparents, great-grandparents, parents, through this current generation of of losing their land, losing their homeland, and then living under military occupation for generations and and having these, um, you know, bombing campaigns and continuing uh, trauma experiencing on the ground there with homes being destroyed and people being killed for, for many, many generations. This isn't a new thing. It, this is the most extreme version of it that we've ever seen. But this generational trauma is part of the Palestinian um, experience. It's part of who they are as a people. And uh, and that has already, we've already seen that over years, produce certain aspects in their society, in their culture, as a result of being so heavily traumatized and that intergenerational trauma being part of the Palestinian life. And, And I think it's only going to be much worse in the impact that it's going to have. How are we going to rebuild a civil society there? How can we build a civil society in Gaza in which people can... Um, develop and live in a more normal environment when their entire population has been traumatized for generations and this is the most extreme version and we have no idea when it's going to end we've already lost five thousand children a thousand of them are living under or buried under rubble some of them are slowly dying to the cries of the people around them that can't save them how are we and, and this may go on to be another five thousand another ten thousand another twenty thousand children let's remember one thing here there's one million children in gaza if we were to equate the number of casualties in gaza today to the american population of 72 million children we would would have 350,000 dead American children in one month killed by bombs landing on their homes, churches, mosques, hospitals, schools. 350,000 dead Americans. What kind of trauma would we have in our country if 350,000 American children were killed in one month by a foreign occupying army? What impact would that have on us as a society? What trauma will we experience? Not individually, each of us, with the loss of our family members and our children and our neighbors, but as a society. That's what the Gaza people are going through. That's what they've been going through for generations. And this is what we have to take into consideration when we talk about trauma. It's not just happened in the past month. It's been happening since 1948.
2: And Dr. Ford, I want to bring here, uh, in here because we have talked about this is definitely not a new thing. This is this is unfortunately extremely familiar for a lot of people in the region. And Steve described earlier too that there is a very uh, important need to get to the region to provide psychological first aid immediately. So can we talk about the impact of being able to address those needs early? You know, How does addressing it early impact long-term health outcomes?
1: The best thing that we can do is to provide as much safety and security for those children and those communities as fast as possible. And that that's that's a much larger political challenge but i think that that's the one that steve is really focusing our attention on and that is crucial while we're doing that and hopefully as that becomes more part of the these children's lives and experiences that there that there is safety that there are ways in which they can actually be, begin to see their community being rebuilt while that's happening Many of these children are going to need to to find ways and and have people who help them to express what they have experienced. And for for children, the experience of trauma is often one that they can't put into words. It's something that they may show through a drawing or through play. uh, And having opportunities to simply be in a safe place with adults or adults who are actually aware of the fact that children need to express this impact. It's not to get rid of it. It's not to get over it. It's simply to be able to begin to make sense of what they're feeling because they've had to shut off their feelings in order to simply survive. And when their feelings get turned back on, they need a place and security and support to express those feelings. That can happen in therapy. It can happen in with religious officials. uh, It can happen with parents. But it's something that absolutely is essential so that children don't bottle up this traumatic stress and carry it with them for sometimes decades and over generations, as Steve said.
2: We're hearing from Dr. Julian Ford, who's a clinical psychologist and professor of psychiatry and law at the University of Connecticut Health Center, and Steve Sosby, who's the president and founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund And joining us now to talk about how this war is creating a lasting impact on those outside of Israel and Gaza is Rabbi Deborah Cantor. She's a spiritual leader of B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for being with us today.
0: Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much, Catherine. Um, This is a really, really difficult time. Um, Steve spoke to the Um, horrors of uh, being in of children and and their families being uh, in a place that's that's under siege that's part that's in a war Jews and Palestinians are two traumatized peoples Laying claim to basically the same land, and with very different narratives, and over now generations, uh, it's more and more difficult for um, each of these people, peoples to to even kind of grasp what uh, another narrative might be, um, but. But I think each side eventually needs to acknowledge the loss and trauma of the other. Um, And before that, there's so much work to be done to undo the dehumanization, the fear, the anger, the sense of hopelessness on both sides that there can ever be peace. Um, One of my Muslim friends uh, who reached out to me uh, towards the beginning of the war um, and after, after October 7th, um, said um, when when we get to a point where we cannot acknowledge um, the the pain and suffering of each other's children, um, what hope is there? And she said, I think that God is not pleased with us. You know, when people are threatened, when people are afraid. Uh, when people are just t- terrified when their existential fears we don't bring our best selves forward we can't possibly do that and I think that you know Dr Ford spoke to that uh certainly it's um the the reverberations of 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 trauma for children reach you know affect their entire lives um and uh I I want to just speak to, how this is affecting since i'm a rabbi i'm not a i'm not a geopolitical ec- expert there are all kinds of moving parts uh that are so beyond our control in terms of just the whole region uh and what's going on this is not simply uh a war between hamas and israel it, it's the uh, there's far more uh geopolitical imp- implications but i'm just a rabbi so I will say this. Um, today is the thir- is day 35 uh, of the war uh, since Hamas invaded Israel uh, in October. Today, we also mark 85 years, yesterday and today, since Kristallnacht, that pogrom on November 9th and 10th, 1938, when nazis stormed uh, across germany and austria demolishing uh jewish homes and hospitals and synagogues and businesses and took you know took um jewish men 30,000 jewish men captive hundreds murdered and that was seen that is seen as the beginning of the holocaust my synagogue uh, benet tikke shalom was founded by refugees, German refugees, who came here in the wake of Kristallnacht. So for us, this date really reverberates very strongly. And I will tell you that right now, um, at any anytime I, I run into another Jewish person, not just in my synagogue, I could be in the grocery store and I run into somebody else from the Jewish community and they look at me and they're stricken and they say, how are you doing and and they and they say it's happening again isn't it rabbi so the shock of the events on october 7th um the grief of of those lost the existential fears the the fact is that Jews around the world feel so deeply deeply connected to Israel um even if we don't have family there many of us do have family we have good friends i have so many friends whose children and grandchildren uh have been called up to the war everybody knows someone who was murdered or taken captive um and there's also at the same time there there has uh there's a sadness about um Non Jewish friends who haven't reached out, who think that we're okay when we're not, we're decidedly not okay. And that uh, real palpable fear over the enormous increase in anti Jewish rhetoric and attacks around the world, which began immediately after the Hamas invasion, before Israel had retaliated in any way. And that sense of, oh my God, Rabbi, it's happening again. Of course it is. We knew this. Um, and I, what I try to say is, look, it's not 1938. The world is a different place, um, but emotionally, that's where we are. Emotionally, that's where we are. Well, and with and, what you just uh,
2: shared, you know, you mentioned yeah. reverberation, of course, historically, and also the yeah. very palpable fear that that communities are feeling today. And so yep. as, as a spiritual leader, you know, as you're having these conversations with various community um, members, as you have been providing counsel and support for people, are you hearing about more mental and emotional issues resurfacing because of this? It sounds like oh, you absolutely. are with what you're sharing. You know, yeah. Are you seeing more people being impacted by secondary trauma? Oh, yes,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. And and I'm counseling people. a uh, 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 on ways I think that Dr Ford would probably recognize you know ways to try to mitigate uh some of the trauma that people are are feeling right now a kind of secondary trauma um, that people are feeling right now you know and I ask them where do you get your news and they'll say well I have a 24-hour news station you know on at all times and I say okay first turn off the television you need to limit you need to know what's going on but you need to limit what you're doing you need to reach out to others you need to be you know um you, we need to nurture a sense of hope that at some point uh, their you know wiser heads will prevail and there could be different kinds of leadership in Israel Palestine uh, and that there could be support for um diplomatic and negotiated means to provide safe and secure uh places for both of these very traumatized people but i am uh, you know i i am meeting with people you know for coffee uh doing a lot of pastoral um hair for folks that are just terrified they are just terrified and they are feeling uh this very bleak sense of oh my god it's happening again
2: and Dr. Ford, I want to bring you back here to sort of respond to what both Steve and Rabbi Cantor has to say. You know, it's a lot to impact. I am very aware of this. Um, we talked about intergenerational trauma, secondary trauma, and reverberations from, you know, past historical events. You know, anything that jumped out to you, Dr. Ford, that you would like to respond to?
1: Well, I think that both Rabbi Cantor and Mr. Sosby are are, are very poignantly Reminding us that this is this is an experience that generations have had, that entire communities have had, whether they're Jewish, whether they're Muslim, or any other religion or culture, and that it, in addressing this, we have to remember that every one of us is is affected. And what Rabbi Cantor was just describing, I think, is so important as we reach out and make sure that we're not isolating ourselves because of the sense of threat, because of the shock, because of the feeling of helplessness. Just to remember that we're, we're not just simply getting support for ourselves, but we're reminding others that there are those that there are those of us who deeply care. We may not be able to do anything directly for the children in Gaza or the children and families in Israel, but we can do things that make things that make this world safer and more secure in our own communities. And that actually makes a fundamental difference. Now, I don't want to suggest that that, that replaces the kinds of efforts that Mr. Sosby is is making and, and his uh, relief fund or the efforts that are being made in, in Israel uh, to support those who have been affected and who are still being affected. And I, I work with colleagues in Israel who have done an amazing work to help people recover from trauma both people of, of the Jewish faith, but also those of the Arab, uh, of the Muslim faith. Everything that those those people are doing directly, we can do in our own lives, and our own communities, and that makes a difference, and that can help us to not just become emotionally numb to the these terrible circumstances.
2: And we just have a couple of minutes left, but I have a final question for both Steve and Rabbi Kantor. I'll start with Steve. Um, you know, as people are working up close to this trauma right now, how are you taking care of yourself?
3: Well, that's a good question. And I appreciate you asking me that. Every day I wake up and ask my staff, I send a text to my staff, my 40 colleagues, social workers, field workers, accountants, procurement officers, program managers, I ask them if they're alive. And I've run out of other ways to ask that because after 40, nearly 40 days of this, um, you know, there's really not much else to ask, but hey, are you still alive? Uh, and, and and that's a hard thing to do every single day. They have families. These are friends of mine. These are people I've worked with for years. So obviously, uh, you know, finding a way to take care of myself and my family. My wife's a pediatric oncologist. She works and helped to build the cancer department in Gaza. It's her life mission to treat children with cancer, and now she's today being traumatized by the scenes of that department being bombed and destroyed, and that her patients are leaving the hospital waving white flags in wheelchairs and have no place to go. So it's trauma that's affecting us. Now, what we tell ourselves every day is that we're not on the ground in Gaza. It's not our lives that are being destroyed. We're connected as human beings with emotions and feelings and love and compassion for our brothers and sisters there. And this is not just compassion and love for our brothers and sisters in Gaza who we're connected to personally as friends, as colleagues, as people we work with and had know firsthand and have food and have eaten in their homes and celebrated life together but also compassion for our brothers and sisters in Israel who've also suffered. And we recognize that, but how we can take care of ourselves in my opinion is just channel our grief and our energy and our anger and our frustration, and our sadness and depression into positive action. There's nothing else we can do right now. Yes, we have to take care of ourselves, but we also have to take care of the people whose lives we can affect. And uh, I think there there are things we can do. Uh, It's not hopeless. We have to rebuild. We have to rebuild our cancer department. We have to, Find treatment for kids who are injured. We have to support initiatives that will bring peace and healing to all parties there. And most importantly, we have to bring healing to these poor children in Gaza. There's a genocide being committed against them right now. And we have to put a stop to it. Those are American bombs. Those are American weapons. It's our leaders who are responsible. We, as American taxpayers, are responsible. We have to take responsibility for what's happening there and put a name to it.
2: Well, thank you so much, Steve, for for sharing that. And Rabbi Cantor, I want to pose the same question for you. Uh, unfortunately, we only have about a minute or two left. But as you know, people are working up close to this trauma as well. You know, how are you taking care of yourself as you're talking to your congregation?
0: That's what my therapist asks me every week. Are you taking care of yourself, Deb? Um, and I think that I, I try, I try very hard to take the advice that I give to other people, which is, uh, which is hard. I'm better at giving the advice to others, but I think that we have to um, find, find uh, places that we can make an impact and, um, and we can make an impact. You know, we can support folks who are doing humanitarian work. We can, um, we can, you, um, act with extra kindness toward one another. Um, You know, I'm filled with hurt and fear and anguish for my people and for the civilians in Gaza. And it's just such a dark time. I I think we need to acknowledge what a difficult time this is. Um, I need we need to acknowledge that, you know that our that your Jewish friends are not okay, uh, your Palestinian friends are not okay. Um, we, we need to act with extra kindness and nurture a sense of hope. Hope that things can get better, that the, the horrors of this time uh, will at some point soon, please lead to something new and better on both sides. Uh, with a different kind of leadership for Israel and, and Gaza. Um, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be on the board of trustees of HIU, the Hartford International University for Religion and Peace, where we train students from all over the world to engage in deep dialogue, to listen. We train peacemakers who do amazing work around the world. Um, and And it's hard for many of us here Um, my Muslim, and especially Palestinian friends, it's hard for us to talk to each other because we are in such deep pain. But, and and now is not maybe the time to engage, but I hope and pray that the time will come again when we will um, join together once again um, and renew our friendships and our bonds and recognize, as Steve said, uh, the humanity um, of one another, not the demonization but the humanity of one another and try to help support those who are building partnerships and relationships um both um Palestinians and Israelis and um and also uh you know within within Israel uh uh among uh, uh the 20% of of uh muslim of of uh, arab um uh, citizens and others so we want well, to support there. those things and right now it's war and it's it's really dark
2: Rabbi Cantor, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. You've been listening to Rabbi Deborah Cantor of the B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue, as well as Steve Sosby, who's a president and founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Thank you both so much for being here today and helping us navigate through this very difficult conversation.
0: And Dr. Thank D- you for
2: doing this. Of course. Thank you very much for your, both of your time. And Dr. Julian Ford will be staying with us. Coming up next, we learn about the science of trauma and how it actually changes the body, the brain, and even our DNA. This is Where We Live. I'm Kevin Shen. Stay with us. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Researchers are still working to understand how trauma impacts not only our minds, but our bodies as well. Joining us now to give us a better understanding of how trauma actually changes our physiology is Dr. Talene Adonian. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and founder of the Resonance Center for Psychotherapy and Healing Arts in West Hartford. Thank you so much, Dr. Adonian, for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us more about this research and what do we know about how trauma actually changes the brain?
5: Yes, so there are three different but interrelated systems in our brain that help us respond to danger and and stress. And first, it's important to just get a brief understanding of what those systems do. So there we have the prefrontal cortex, which is the most sophisticated, sort of evolved analytic uh, part of our brain, the limbic system, which is our brain's emotional memory center, uh, threat detection mechanism. And then we have brain stem, which is the most primitive um, part of this system that's responsible for autonomic functions like heart rate and breathing. Um, and when we are in ongoing traumatic conditions or when uh, people perhaps have lived a lifetime of trauma where they have to um, have faced danger and threat all the time, it changes the way that these three systems work. Um, The limbic system, the emotional memory center and the brainstem get um, sort of override the more um, evolved, sophisticated part of our brain that helps us make good decisions and think ahead. Um, Which is why, uh, like Rabbi Cantor was saying, that we, really are literally unable to bring our best selves forward. This can look like hypervigilance, avoidance, depression, anxiety. Um, when we when our brains are in this state of, um, of fear or underwhelm, shut down, we're really unavailable for connection and our brains will struggle to engage in um, critical thinking, problem solving, taking mindful action, will be difficult as well. We would have trouble communicating, collaborating with others because these systems in our brain that allow us to do those things that we need for conflict resolution, for example, um, are literally unavailable to us. So trauma results in um, a fundamental reorganization of not only um, our perception, but how we think, how we think, and of course, how we behave.
2: And we only have a couple minutes left here, but I do want to touch real quickly on, you know, not only does trauma impact our own bodies and minds, it's actually passed on generation to generation as we've listened to earlier. Can you tell us how does that work?
5: That's right. So um, Dr. Ford uh, had talked about intergenerational trauma, which is what happens when um, an unhealed nervous system um, in a parent or grandparents is inadvertently passed down biologically or psychologically to their children. So the ways that uh, the brains and bodies of parents and grandparents um, change as a result of trauma can actually change the genetic makeup and um, predisposition to for mental illness and even physical illness for the children of those um, traumatized parents, a, you know, a parent with a n- regulated nervous system, parents whose brains have not had to adapt and reorganize themselves as a result of trauma is a form of intergenerational wealth that we don't really talk about and that so many Palestinian Israeli families will not be afforded for generations. Um, I'm a clinical psychologist that specializes in trauma. I'm also a first generation Armenian American woman I am a descendant, direct descendant of genocide survivors of the Armenian genocide of 1915, which happened over a century ago. Um, Just recently, there was another uh, event in um, in the land of indigenous Armenians, where there was a mass exodus just weeks before the Israel Palestine conflict. Um, And so it's going to take generations and it has taken generations for uh the armenian people the it's going to have a similar effect with palestinian um, and israeli people to even um get a get a handle on what has happened and the impact on their brains and bodies and then it will take uh, even more generations to heal that impact of this this traumatic stress
2: well we Um, certainly my
5: work is ongoing in
2: that right Right. And then we, we certainly want to continue this conversation and, and, and have this ongoing discussion about about the different ways of dealing with trauma. But unfortunately, we only got about a, a about minute left. But I do want to ask, you know, are there any resources you can point our listeners to? Because finding a therapist can be challenging when it comes to this space.
5: Yes, absolutely. Uh, there, there are a number of resources that um, people can look to. Uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, there are resources for individuals who might be experiencing symptoms of PTSD or other mental illness. There's information about pathology, treatment, support. So if uh, people go to uh, NAMI.org, uh, there's a Connecticut chapter of um, from the National Alliance on Mental Health, and there's free mental health support available. There's online groups, uh, peer-led support groups. And then um, more specifically, if, if people are interested in um, trauma-specific psychotherapy, there is, uh, I would recommend emdrea.org. It's the EMDR International Association um, Accelerated Resolution Therapy uh, is another type of treatment that has been um, shown to be effective in in addressing post-traumatic stress symptoms.
2: Well, thank for you. Suicide. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Talene uh, Andonian, for sharing those resources. Appreciate your time. You've been listening to Dr. Talene Andonian, who is a licensed clinical psychologist and founder of the Resonance Center for Psychotherapy and Healing Arts in West Hartford. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Cap Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.